Hello, interior design lovers, and welcome to another episode of the Daniel House Book Club. I'm Peter Spaulding, the Chief Creative Officer of Daniel House Club, and I'm talking to you from my deathbed today. Kidding, but we're more than two years in, and I'm wondering if I've finally caught the bug. I'm achy and sore, my nose will not stop running, and my throat feels like a gravel pit. Fortunately, part of what we are covering today includes the late decorator Mark Hampton's viewpoints on sumptuous bedrooms. As I lay in my bed and explore all he has to say, I can't help but think of six or seven improvements that could be made in my own bedroom. If you receive the Daniel House Club emails, you know that I recently added what's called a half-tester to my own bed. That's a partial canopy, often mounted to the ceiling with curtaining running from floor to ceiling behind the headboard and maybe 14 or 18 inches on either side. I never imagined myself sleeping in a canopied bed and only made this addition as I hastily sought to cover a huge hole cut in the wall behind my bed, um, which was cut there to fix uh, some plumbing in an emergency just the day before a big photo shoot. I still may remove the half tester, but it does create a wonderful cocoon-like quality that is nice every day and especially when you feel like death. As Hampton will point out, it also lends scale to a room and commands attention in a way that allows diverse furnishings to defer to its mass and live nicely together. Today we are covering the section in the book Mark Hampton on Decorating titled Elements. We've encountered similar headings in earlier decorating handbooks we've discussed, but the contents of this one are a little bit different. Where others addressed what we may think of a little more exclusively as architectural elements, Hampton addresses elements of comfort and daily living too. And this change makes sense to me, as he wrote maybe 75 or 100 years after the books we looked at before, and a lot about the role even well-off people played in facilitating their daily lives had changed by then. Also, even though Hampton worked for very wealthy clients, he worked during a time when a lot of the solid architecture of the early 20th century had already been destroyed by efforts to modernize. Where plans and door casings and window openings and crown moldings had been so critical, often all that remained to identify the period of a place was its mantle. Or, this was the piece to be considered first in order to inform all the architecture that would be added to support and respond to it. This is really interesting, though, because where earlier writers told us a little bit antiseptically what the basic signifiers of an 18th century mantelpiece from France were and how they might relate to the adjacent architecture, Hampton tells us how the mantle might make a room feel. He tells us how we can dress the same mantle to achieve a large range of moods, or how greatly changing a room's mantle will change its whole demeanor. I had a professor of architecture who assigned a studio project of designing a meal and all the tools necessary to partake of that meal uh, to be had in a park with a wonderful view of a distant mountain. Student groups could pick whatever location they wanted within the park to plan their meal. Almost invariably, locations with prime views of the mountain were chosen. Our professor expressed some disappointment with this, inquiring what was so compelling about the mountain after all. 
This, for me, illustrated a big problem in the architectural community of generally going against the interests of everyday people. The view of the mountain was the whole reason people came to this park. It absolutely defined the experience, and to ignore it would be, to put it impolitely, boneheaded. Hampton makes the same point about the hearth. I don't think he's saying you can't create a scheme in, in a room with a fireplace in which the furniture is not overtly oriented in the direction of the fireplace, but he is saying it will almost invariably be a room's most prominent feature, and every element in the room will respond to its attitude, as likely will every guest. He indicates we can take two paths with our response to the fireplace. We can allow it to dictate our decisions toward a strict period recreation, or we can deal with it more casually, pairing it with objects from a variety of eras. In the former, he says, very high quality is essential to success. In my own work, I think I've designed more fireplace surrounds than anything else. I love doing it and seeing the impact it has on the way my clients live in their space. That said, I have never created any period rooms. Partly, I think this is because it's not a very popular endeavor these days, but also because such an undertaking seems both inherently expensive and perhaps a little bit inherently boring. I never set out to purge anything or everything a client owns, and the number of people who come to a project with a tightly knit collection of 18th century French furnishings, for example, is slim to none, at least for me. Hampton points out that especially the small French mantelpieces are very versatile and lend scale to a room that has none. Georgian and colonial mantles are less crossover um, a little bit, but can be variable too. I think, also, fireplaces with no mantles at all can be very nice. Anyway, we should move on because there's a lot of elements to cover. Where our previous authors despised elaborate curtains, instead dedicating whole segments of the architecture or to the architecture of window casings, Hampton embraces them. Those earlier authors, as we know, were responding to the excesses of the Victorian era, while Hampton was working in a Victorian revival period, which he himself helped bring on. So swags and many layers were great in his book. Both Edith Wharton and Elsie de Wolfe spoke of simple French curtains, often unlined in linen, or a bit later, chintz, as sort of the end-all, be-all. But here we have the pages, um, we have pages dedicated to more elaborate English-style curtains. I'm happy for this because it actually helped me understand why I still have an aversion to swags and thick rods with pineapple finials. It's because I saw way too many of them when I was a kid in rooms with eight-foot-tall ceilings um, that made no concession for the fact that the windows they covered were so much shorter than the 10 or 12 or even higher ceilinged rooms they had originally been designed to cover in English country homes centuries earlier. He shows watercolors of methods um, early Americans used to scale down grand European designs to fit in the comparatively small spaces we have here in America. He shows an illustration of a very short, maybe two or three inch wooden um, valance board with tassel fringe he designed based on some of these earlier concepts, which is so comparatively light as to be charming and unobtrusive. 
So often, these curtains that I remember seem to have been wearing the room, like a suit that was several sizes too big for the man wearing it. One trick I see a lot of designers still try, even when they otherwise are very good decorators, um, in attempting to create a simpler, more architectural cap for curtains, is to have the crown molding of a room run right over the top of a pair of curtains, creating a box where all the mechanics can hide. This always looks terrible to me. Um, it looks heavy, inert, and very hotelish. I think the primary reason is that, as Hampton sort of points out, um, windows are one of the primary punctuation marks of any room. So um, dressing them in a way that makes them recede or feel like everything else is just not a very good idea. Hampton's section on lamplight, um, so that was a whirlwind tour of curtains. We're moving on to lamplight. Um, was at once the nearest and furthest thing from my mind. Near, as I am always being told or teased, um, for strongly favoring lamplight over any other sort, and far because the opportunity to design every element of a lamp or convert some old Chinese vase or candlestick into a lamp almost never presents itself. Even when he wrote in 1989, Hampton said lighting was a category whose options never contracted and always expanded. Now, over 30 years later, there are probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of ready-made lamps waiting to ship to your job site. Very, very few of them re resemble the major lamps Hampton denoted as the very best. Vintage and antique versions of the tall bullet lamp he called out as likely one to never go out of style and readily, are readily available on Cherish and First Dibs, but there are virtually no contemporary options around. And I should say, I do remember my parents owning one of these lamps when I was a kid, probably at the exact moment that Hampton was writing this book. While I love the idea, I have seen and I have seen a few designers do it. Electrifying candlesticks, especially wood ones, is very rare these days. Electrifying Chinese or Japanese porcelain is more common, though kind of old school. I think probably the contemporized version of this is to specify a beautifully glazed Christopher Spitzmiller lamp. Since it is rare we have to electrify old objects to make lamps, I think we are a lot less familiar with the scaling of every various part of a lamp. A lot of times, the ugly white drum shade that comes with the table lamp we specify is what remains. There are very cool lampshades available, especially from English makers, but sometimes they're a little bit too zany for a restrained client, and at least on the West Coast can be very expensive once you factor in shipping. Uh, specifying a good lampshade is, for me, one of the most challenging pieces of a project. I have heard, as Hampton pointed out, that a very soft pink lining is nice in a lampshade, but I haven't seen one lined this way since I was pretty little. Anyway, this section unlocked a wealth of knowledge I'm eager to employ, and the basic message is that lamplighting is very important to making a room feel cozy and inviting. We cannot rely on a bunch of overhead light to make something feel warm. The next element Hampton includes is mirrors. 
We talked quite a bit about mirrors in one of our episodes on Elsie DeWolf's House in Good Taste, so rather than spend too much time on the topic here, I'd refer you to one of those episodes. I will just say Hampton loves mirrors for their ability to produce fantasy, bounce light, and expand space. They are especially smart in dark spaces between windows and on walls adjacent, but not across from, windows with views. Interestingly, he does point out that in the old days, mirrors were much more valuable than works of art by even the most renowned painters. This is why there are prominently displayed architectural features in rooms, and why the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles was so incredibly impressive at its time. It's been a while, but nowhere in the earlier handbooks do I remember a conversation on the importance of deep, comfortable seating. On the merits of various styles of antique chairs, yes, but on all kinds of upholstery, no. Hampton may answer the question I posed as we looked at the book 1,000 Chairs. That was, why were so few of them upholstered, and is upholstery a lesser art? Hampton says the first rooms to feature large sofas and chairs, apart from French courts, obviously, were the big halls of English country houses, where all classes of people were received, including farmers, children, and even dogs. The implication is that uh, upholstery is informal, and this perception has stuck for a very long time. He talks about a variety of well-known upholstered chair types and connects their names with their places of origin. The tuxedo sofa, like the jacket, was first used in Tuxedo Park, New York, for instance. He even mentions a company called Howard Chair Company, continuously making the same tried-and-true profiles since 1820. I looked them up, and they are still in business, if you're curious. You can find them at howardandsonslondon.com, and they do have some beautiful classic English upholstery available. Um, so definitely head over there and check it out. Uh, what I thought was most interesting here is that Hampton offered a short bit on the way different designers use upholstery when he compared the work of Elsie DeWolf with her contemporary Siri Mom. The former, he says, cared very much about high-quality antique seating, and the decorative effect the pieces had on her overall scheme was sort of negligible. Mom, on the other hand, had huge new upholstered pieces made and focused less on the quality of the individual pieces and more on the effect they were going to have in her larger scheme. I don't think he was saying her upholstery was cheaply done at all. Simply, her seating did not need to be rarefied. I think I personally would fall nearer her camp insofar as I would definitely prioritize the impact of the whole over the quality of an individual part. He also emphasizes that if you stick with fairly classic upholstery shapes, you can always modify them over the years to bring them back and forth in time as fashion dictates. I think this is one of the least understood aspects of interior design by the general consumer. I think most of them think, okay, I'm done with this chair, it looks old, I'm going to take it to the dump or to Goodwill. Uh, but there really is so much um, alteration possible within a given profile. Um, another element addressed here is the slipper chair. And I think Hampton just sees this as a bit of an underloved piece of furniture and wants to make sure we all see how versatile it is. Diminutive in size, 
it scoots around a room easily and can be done in sort of wacky uh, ways without calling too much attention to itself. And it's actually a lot more comfortable than its tiny stature and armlessness suggests. Uh, as we've mentioned numerous times before, armless chairs, especially small ones, are great um, when you're trying to sort of facilitate a big party. Multiple people can often sit on them, and they can scoot around to change the conversation groupings. Now, as I mentioned before, we find ourselves in the bedroom, which Hampton views as a truly private space where all our most personal interests should be conveyed. He says that bedrooms shown in old Hollywood movies were much more chaste than they needed to be, the result, probably, of careful study of what Americans at the time thought appropriate to good, solid characters. The bedrooms the stars of these movies went home to were much more sensual and romantic, as were a lot of the bedrooms of history. Hampton does talk a lot about various types of canopies, and I'd encourage you to read for yourself. But the thing that struck me the most, and which I sort of already brought up, was how a canopy bed can have a settling effect on a room full of disparate objects. It's just kind of like how a big cabinet, even if it's not that pretty, can settle a living room. You need something big to focus on. Um, I think this is just a great illustration of how critical it is to constantly be considering scale in every room you do. I'm sort of racing now because my eyes are feeling glassy and I'm craving NyQuil. Um, so I'll say there are a couple of great pages on the importance of appropriate quality framing of art, uh, which is something I don't think most of us know a ton about these days. Um, but I'm going to skip to the last of Hampton's elements because I think it's surprisingly the most in-step with today's trends, and that is setting the table. It's kind of weird, I think, to include this one in Elements. Definitely wasn't something that would have been included in our earlier handbooks here. Um, but I do really like its inclusion because it brings the inhabitants of the house pretty clearly into the picture at an early stage. And where Hampton has tended a little closer to academically conceived rooms than we would today, uh, here he sort of indicates a whole lot of success of setting and inviting table relies on the confidence and personal style of the one doing the setting. Basically, he has an if-you-love-it-it-will-work attitude here. Unlikely combinations and the ability to arrange in new ways from day to day are what surprise and delight guests and keep them coming back to see what's next. Then, uh, at the end of this section, he closes with something that feels pretty untoday to me. Uh, well, first, I'll say he says no colored candles, except weirdly he likes black ones. Um, uh, and I knew this about Hampton's era, uh, but I do love my bright yellow candles. I love colored candles on tables. I think they're very fun. Um, but then he says, maybe setting the table isn't a job we should leave to kids after all. Grown-up creativity is more reliable than a child's improvisi improvisation after all. I don't think a whole lot of people would let their kids set the table for a big, important party they were throwing. But I do think a lot of people today, um, and actually probably in Hampton's era too, um, feel that very little education is required to be creative. And so... 
what I'm sort of picking up on here is that um, that actually educated creativity can be a lot more interesting than improv that's based on very little. Um, and I think the sort of message that I want to end with is that um, it seems to me that Mark Hampton is a character who, or a person, not a character, who spent pretty much every day of his life expanding his knowledge, expanding his vocabulary, uh, obviously was very editorial with that. But um, I think we can push ourselves to know more, see more, experience more, so that we can bring more into our creative endeavors. Um, because that will be really um, the recipe for very interesting and exciting and rule-breaking work. Um, so I'm dying now. I um, will be revived, I think, by next Tuesday, and I will talk to you then. Uh, in the meantime, if you are not a Daniel House Club member, but you're a designer um, who spends any time at all sourcing for your projects, um, you should definitely consider becoming one. So head over, over to danielhouse.club and consider membership with us. Um, it will make your furniture purchasing life so much better. Okay, I will talk to you next week. Uh, uh, uh.